Welcome to the Leadership School Podcast. I'm your host, leadership and self-care coach, Kyla Kofer. Here at the Leadership School, you'll hear leaders from around the world sharing their stories and expertise on how to lead with balance and integrity. Our goal? Teach you how to be an extraordinary leader. My guest today is Derek McManus. He's a former South Australian police officer where he served for 42 years. 10 of those years were with the Special Tasks and Rescue, or STAR Group. Using his experience as a police officer and in the STAR Group, Derek has created a model of human durability and a model of how to take extreme ownership of our lives. He shares that with us today, along with his experiences that led him to creating this model and how we can apply that as leaders and in our everyday lives. I'm honored to have Derek joining us today and know that you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please join me in welcoming Derek McManus. I'm here with Derek McManus. And I am just really excited about our conversation. You're coming, Derek, all the way from Australia. So you're enjoying the day ahead of me. And I love that. Welcome to the Leadership School podcast. Yeah, thank you. And as we discussed before, welcome to your future birthday. Happy birthday from Australia, where you're going to catch up with us tomorrow for your birthday in America. Thank you so much. Yes, I think this is going to be a really great birthday because I get to enjoy it. Much longer. So yeah, that's right. Thank you so much. It's <laughs> so, great to be here with the podcast with you as well. I really am looking forward to it. Yeah, awesome. Well, Derek, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? You have a really incredible story, and I'd love to hear details some more about that and about what brought you here and what brings you to the Leadership School podcast. Yeah, sensational. Thanks. So my background is 42 years of policing in Australia. 42 years of policing, I like to tell people I started when I was six. There's not many people that believe that, but, you know, I like to throw it out there. (laughs) And I have had a fascinating career in police. And, you know, once you hear the stories, you'll find it even harder to believe. But I have loved every day of the job that I do, every day of it, even in the situation, and we're going to talk about it in more depth in a little while, where I was shot 14 times, lying on the ground for three hours before they could get me out. First doctor that gets me said I was 30 seconds from death, and he didn't even know whether I was alive at that stage. He said that I took a last gasping breath, and then he treated me and realized I was you know, right on that limit of almost dead. I recovered from that. It took me two and a half years physically to recover from that. But psychologically, I was cleared within three months, the first meeting with the psychiatrist, three months after the shooting. He cleared me psychologically to go back to work the next day. And I never needed to come back and see him again. So it took me two and a half years physically, but psychologically it was like that. And we'll talk about some of those insights. Now, that's the biggest incident that I've had in my career. The bits that I am happy to delve into, but most people don't know anything about is that was in 1994. In 1987, I was also on the road. A guy pulled a gun on us. We got into a wrestling match with him. The gun had to be cocked so it could be fired. As we were wrestling, his girlfriend has reached over and cocked it. Um, I put my thumb between the hammer and the gun to stop it being fired, to hold the hammer back. And then there are lots of other smaller incidents, but very, very similar. So as much as the shooting being shot 14 times is the big, big story, being able to manage that came from all the preparation that I'd done in all those other incidents before. 
where I've gone, oh, I've got a bit of a struggle there. I've had a challenge. This almost went wrong. If I was to come into that situation again, how would I do it better? And all that prepared me for being able to manage the shooting in the way I did. So to get into that shooting situation, uh, just to give you a background, I was in the, what we call STAR group, and STAR stands for Special Task and Rescue. So it was high-risk arrests, hostage siege, counter-terrorism. I trained with the military SAS in counter-terrorist techniques, and the, the SAS are the equivalent to your Navy SEALs. So I trained with them in counter-terrorism. I was VIP protection to the Queen when the Queen came to visit Australia. We do cliff rescue, cave rescue, mine rescue, underwater diving, all sorts of really lovely, exciting stuff. My mother sees it slightly differently to what I do, but I do it. I loved it. And we went to arrest a guy and he obviously didn't want to be arrested and started shooting. And that's what happened. At what point in your career was this? How long had you been an officer when that happened? Okay, so I did three years of training, which back in the day was normal, but these days you go, wow, three years of training. And then I was on the job for 15 years after that. Okay, so you'd had 15 years of those, all those high-intensity experiences that really led you up to this one moment. And those other high-intensity experiences, most of them were when I was on general duties. The guys you see driving around in the cars, every and any one of them could be exposed to an incident like that in a moment. Wow. You know, my dad was a police officer and he wasn't in a special forces situation like you were at all. But as a kid, I never really thought about the danger of that. As an adult, we certainly see it. We understand it more. And unless you're in it, you tend to, I tend to remove myself from it a little bit. So I haven't thought through, oh, these people are in danger. This is not a movie. Yeah, that's right. And we will get to it in a moment. But that's when the people who are in the situation need to have those open, honest, confronting conversations about the reality of you know what they're doing and what the possible consequences could be. But it's that open, yeah. honest, confronting conversation that allows you to prepare. And when I went through those other situations, it was doing the debrief and having those open, honest, confronting conversations, confronting the reality. That was real. It could happen again. If it was to happen again, how would I like to manage it better? There are certain times where you go, no, that's exactly how I want to handle it next time. So it's about learning from those and reinforcing the behaviors we want to exhibit. So tell me more about that, because what you're doing and you're talking about is really refining a skill set and an expertise, but at a very high and risky level. So you are finding ways to improve yourself constantly with a team too, right? This wasn't just you particularly. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'd love to. So as you said, I'm refining my skills in a very, very high risk environment. But this same set of skills, I talk to kids in schools about how they manage things in the schoolyard or with their teachers or, or with their parents. I talk to hairdressers about how they deal with their clients or how the owner of the business deals with their staff. And I talk to fighter pilots, and it's all exactly the same conversation, just pitched at their level, but it's exactly the same concept, no matter what level we're talking about. So it is about taking responsibility for our choices, our actions, our consequences, consequences good and bad. It's not just about thinking what could go wrong. It's about thinking about what can go well as well. But then thinking about the future afterwards and taking responsibility for the future afterwards. But we've got to do all four of those 
before we actually make the choice, the final choice. We've got to give consideration to, oh, I want to make this choice. What would my behaviour be? What might the consequence be? And what might the future afterwards be? And that leads us to having these confronting conversations about the reality of the future. And the confronting part of it does not have to be aggressive. It doesn't have to be overly assertive. It just has to deal with the reality, and that's the confronting part. It can be done lightheartedly. It can be done with care, compassion, concern for everybody involved. But that conversation has to start with you. You are the leader of your life first and foremost, and then every decision you make and every action you take is going to have a consequence for those people around you, whether it be your family, whether it be your partner, whether it be your colleagues, whether it be the business you're operating. So taking responsibility for choices, actions, consequence, and the future afterwards is really the hallmark of everything. So we've got four things. Let's go through them again. Choices, actions, consequences, and then future afterwards. And when you say consequences, I'm assuming you mean more like immediate consequences. And then future would be long-term. So most people think if I make a decision to buy a business, then I've got to go down and go through the process and take over and I'm going to have to move all my stuff in there, stuff out, rebadge, rename. So that's your actions. And the consequence of that is... I'm going to have an absolutely sensational life because of all the money I have and all the happiness. It may go wrong, but even that's a long-term type thing, it may go wrong. But what I talk about in the future afterwards is if it does go well and you start reaping all that money in and have that fun, what do you then have afterwards? How's that going to impact on your life? Because it does change the dynamic between you and other people as to how successful you are and how intimidated they might be. And we all know the stories of those businesses who, yeah, I could do really well for this, but they do so well that they're not ready for the expansion and the business collapses. So you've got to think about if I have a really good outcome as a result of this and that client says, yes, I want one million of those widgets, do you actually have the capacity to build one million of those widgets or are you going to commit to it and fail and then the whole business fails? And if it does go bad, which may be Immediately, it may be one year, it may be 10 years. If it does go bad, what's that going to mean for your relationship with your partner, your financial future, the stability of your house, your children going to university or college or whatever it might be? So it's the immediate choice. Am I making the right choice? Are there other choices I could make? What are my actions going to be? And what are all the options for the different actions that I might be able to do? And what might the consequences be, good and bad, and what might the future afterwards be? Now, I've got a model of durability that I take people through, and it starts with having a look at the vision. What's the vision? And lots of people go, what's my goals? What's my dreams? I just break it down to really simple. What's the outcome you want from the action you're about to take? That is your vision. That is your dream. That's That's the ultimate. What's the outcome you want from the action you're about to take? And then there are three levels of knowledge that we have to have. And I won't go through them all, you know, for brevity or for the podcast, but the third level of knowledge is the most important. And what are the signals or the indicators that tell you I need to take action to remedy something? So it's the indicators that tell you it's going well or it's the indicators that tell you it's going badly. Because we see these and if we're not prepared for them and, you know, you can reflect on your own life. Anybody listening to this podcast can reflect on their own life and you can reflect back and you can go, oh, yeah, I remember a time I saw that happen, 
but I hoped it wasn't going to have an effect. I kept on going and it failed. But if I'd only changed something back then, when I saw that, if I'd taken some action then, it would have been all fixed. But I do it myself. I still do it now, even though I know this process. Sometimes I like to think I trick myself or whatever, but we do it all the time. One of the reasons that we don't act when we see the indicators, we don't know what to do. Sometimes it's just so big, it's scary. I'm not sure. That hasn't gone bad for other people. Hopefully it won't go bad for me. And sometimes we just don't trust ourselves. Oh, that's one of the biggest challenges I have of getting people's head in the game for because we don't trust ourselves. We think, oh my God, I'm a bit of an idiot. So I'm going, what's Kylie going to do for me? You know, what could she do? What would be the right thing? Who's my expert? Who should I get advice from? I honestly believe every one of us intuitively know what we should be doing at that moment when things are going wrong or things are going right. We know what we should do at that moment. We may not know exactly long term as to what to do, so good to get advice from other people. In fact, uh, the military, not so much the police, but the military talk about when everything is getting big, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, focus on your one metre square, the one metre around you. Deal with all the stuff in that one metre, and once you've got that sorted, then you can start looking at the next meter and the next 10 meters, the next 100 meters. But when everything's getting big and scary, deal with your one meter. Make sure that's safe and sorted. Then start looking bigger. And it's the same with anybody in business and in life decisions, in sports decisions, in whatever it might be. We've got to be able to deal with what's immediately in front of us. And generally speaking, we know what to do. Yeah, I had a friend in college who would always tell me I would get really stressed about my big load of homework or what work and everything that I had to do. And he would always just say, just one thing at a time, Kyla, one thing at a time. And that really focused me in, okay, and, and taught me prioritizing in a way, just that one phrase, focus on what has to be done right now in front of me. And once that is out of the way, then I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I could go to the next thing and there will be more things, but you can't do it all at once. So we got to focus and and do what we can do right now and then keep going, keep moving. And lots of people talk about, oh no, I can multitask. And this comes back to do the one thing. Lots of people say, I can multitask and I can do lots of things. We can't. If we're trying to do lots of things, our mind is distracted. Do one thing, do it really well. Be aware of the other things that need to be done. You can't ignore them. But when you're doing one thing, just do that well and then move on to the next one, as you say. So how did this model serve you when you were shot 14 times and you're laying there trying to survive? You used this method. And it's not until I reflected back on it many years later that I realized that this method was what I used. But it's not just what I used in the shooting. It's what I've used throughout my whole life. And And when I talk to people about the model, they go, oh, my gosh, that's actually what I do. And you do it for everything from going shopping for the groceries, for making dinner of a nighttime, all the way through to acquiring a business. It's a very intuitive, natural process. It starts with having those open, honest, confronting conversations. That is the basis for everything. Is that vulnerability at its core? Yeah, absolutely. It's being vulnerable enough to have those conversations rather than knowing that something could happen but not wanting to talk about it because it's too scary. That's living in denial and that's the elephant in the corner of the room that everybody knows is there but nobody wants to talk about. 
And anybody who's been in a committee meeting and they go, right, we need to solve this problem, and they have discussions, they come up with plans, and you walk out and they go, yeah, great, but what about if that happens? Nobody talked about it, but everybody knows about it. So it is about having those open, honest, confronting conversations, but as we've discussed in the past, those conversations, confronting, done with care, compassion, concern for the other people involved in it, and with a positive outcome as the aim for the future. Conversations have to start with ourselves first. So me going into Star Group, I was dealing with high-risk arrest, hostage siege, counter-terrorism. So there's a real possibility I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. I had to take responsibility for my choice to go into Star Group, the actions while I was in Star Group, the possible consequences, good and bad, and then the future afterwards. And I'll talk about some of that in a moment. But once I'd accepted responsibility for that for myself, I then had to have a conversation with my wife because all of my actions were going to impact on her and the family. And the conversation I have with my wife is, going into stories, could be shot and injured, could be shot and killed. If I die, what's your life going to look like? Because it wasn't all about me. I wanted to make sure that she accepted the reality that if I die, she was going to have to prepare for a life on her own, looking after our children, and how's that going to be for her? None of this is about me giving her permission to do one thing or another. It's about let's just have a discussion about do you go on and you stay single and just dedicate yourself to the children? Do you go on, find another relationship and you know have a stepfather to the children? Do you go and live with your parents? Do you whatever? It's not about me giving permission, but I wanted to take away that uncertainty that if I died and she then started trying to make these decisions, she could make them with clarity and certainty rather than going, oh, my gosh, what would have Derek like? Would he have wanted me to stay single? Would he have wanted me to? No, no, we had that discussion. She knew exactly what I wanted. You're kind of like pre-planning for things, but not in a catastrophizing way, in a way of like, this is just reality. We want to be open. We want to be honest about this. We want to be prepared for a situation and assume that it's not going to ever happen. But we know what to do if it does. Okay, I'm going to pick you up on that. Assume that it's never going to happen is probably a little bit of denial. Who was it? Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela said, we can't prepare for the future while secretly pretending it's not going to happen, right? Thinking to myself, I'm going to go into Star Group, but I'll never get shot is ludicrous. We've got a 17-year history. There are, I was the 132nd intake into Star Group. I think we're up to about 200. 30 now of people who have come in and transitioned through. And so I'm the only one that's had a, an injury as serious as this. So there's a good possibility it will never happen, but the reality is it could. On every job that we go to, there's a possibility it could. And that's the reality that we've got to deal with. And you know, just going back to that open, honest, confronting conversation before I go on to the next bit, even though it's a confronting conversation and we're dealing with the reality we can also introduce some lightheartedness into it just to break that tension. And you'll, you'll see this is a big, important part of everything I do to just break the tension so that our mind relaxes and, and actually has the possibility to think. So what I said to my wife, you could go on and get married. You could stay single if you wanted to. I threw her a third option that she could just build a little shrine in the corner and just worship me every day. Now, apparently that one wasn't popular, but that was reality. That was part of that conversation. We were having this really deep conversation about maybe shot and injured, maybe shot and killed, but maybe you could just worship me. 
the other thing that I had to say to her was that if I get shot and I don't die, then I needed her to know before it happened, taking responsibility for the future after that consequence, I said, if I get shot and I don't die, anything better than death is a bonus. And if I have to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair because of what happens, so long as I'm able to interact with my children, I will be the happiest man on earth. Because I've already taken responsibility that if it does happen, it was because of my choice. It wasn't bad fortune. It wasn't misfortune. It wasn't, gee, I didn't expect that to happen. I know what was possible. So it was now up to me to, once that consequence happens, to make the best of the future afterwards that I possibly could. And it's harder to do if you're not preparing beforehand, if your mindset is not attuned to taking that responsibility because there's too many people that would be quite happy to go, oh, my gosh, I got shot. Society now needs to look after me. The police department should be doing everything for me. I put my life on the line for them. They should be putting their life on the line for me. Now, we get support from a lot of people around us. Don't get me wrong. I embraced all of it. But I was the one who needed to take responsibility for it and drive those actions. It's actually the difference between victim thinking and growth mindset. Yeah, you just nailed that. And I'm just seeing all the parallels of how this replies to every situation in our lives. I mean, down to just waking up in the morning, to being a parent, to being a person, to being a neighbor, taking responsibility for who we are in our life and the way we show up is really impactful. If we just continue to show up and say, I'm the victim of my circumstances, then that will continue to define us. But you're talking about, being the one to define you. I get to be that person. I get to make that choice and decision. And no matter what happens to me, I am the one who's going to show up. Absolutely. And for all the leaders who are either owning businesses or running teams, whatever it might be, we actually want everybody underneath us to take responsibility for their action too. Because if they take responsibility for their action, then we can get to a resolution and a solution and growth afterwards a hell of a lot quicker. One of the challenges that we have when we do that is when a leader goes to the team and says, this is broken, who's responsible, whose fault is this? Everybody backs away because most people start thinking, if I put my hand up, they're going to blame me for everything and I'm going to get the sack, I'm going to punish, whatever. I have, when I run my workshops and we, we go into this in depth, very early on I like to say to people, who's responsible for me getting shot? Now, instantly people go, well, what sort of stupid question is that? The person who had the rifle and pointed it at you and pulled the trigger, he's responsible. And I go, excellent, let's blame him. Who else can we blame for me getting shot? Ooh, actually your boss, he's the one that sent you in there. Uh, Your team, they didn't back you up properly. And then it keeps on going and people go, well, the manufacturers of the guns, the people who manufactured the ammunition. I go, excellent, excellent. And eventually somebody goes, you're responsible. And, you know, I'm kind of lighthearted in my workshops and I I sort of go, me? I didn't do anything wrong. It's not my fault, which is the response most people get when they ask their team, who's responsible for this? No, not me, not my fault, not my responsibility. And then we, you know, we have a discussion about it. I don't need to take responsibility for everything. Like I didn't point the rifle at myself, but I need to take responsibility for my part. My part was making that choice, taking that action and putting myself in a position where that might happen. And you can narrow this down to something in everyday life 
where people are driving along the road, somebody fender bends them and smacks into the side of them. They go, oh, my gosh, you have destroyed my life. I didn't do anything wrong. You're responsible for everything now. We've got to take responsibility. We made a choice to get behind the wheel, go out on the road and all those things. Yes, the majority of it is the other person, but you've got to take responsibility for your part. And maybe you were traveling a bit fast or maybe you didn't quite take a look at everything at that intersection. Maybe they came through a stop sign, but if you'd actually looked closer, you might have seen them coming too fast through the stop sign, whatever it might be. We've got to take responsibility for our part. And if we can get that across to the people working in our teams, whether it's our children at home or our peers or you know, in the organisation, if we can get people to take responsibility for their part, we will get to resolutions and solutions and growth a lot faster. Hey, I'm really grateful that you're listening to the Leadership School podcast. Since you've listened this far in, it tells me that you're really enjoying it. It would mean the world to me if you could think of one person right now who might really benefit from this content, take a second and share the podcast with them. Let's spread the word and grow leaders with integrity and balance. I'm curious, though, I'm hearing two parts to this. So I'm definitely on board with what you're saying. But what just crossed my mind was, but what if you really are a victim? When you have been victimized in a way, when somebody has done harm to you that you could not prevent, that kind of thing. So where does our role and responsibility come in that type of a situation? Absolutely. Now, obviously, my background coming from a special operations, special forces type background, people involved in shootings like to talk to me about their headset. We had a mass murder down here in Australia back in 1996, Port Arthur. 33 people were killed and, oh, 33, 35, the wrong thing there. But there were also people there who got injured, got scared, were just in the environment, felt that life-threatening thing. There's somebody else that I spoke to who had been at a jewellery shop when the jewellery shop was robbed. A shotgun went off and injured them. And there was another person who, in America, were taken on a taxi ride and then the taxi driver kidnapped them. These things are obviously things that you couldn't go, oh, well, I saw that in the taxi driver's eyes. I should have been prepared. So there certainly is circumstances where we are not able to anticipate it and it does happen to us. But it still comes down to what do you want to do now? Do you want to sit around and wait for everybody to look after you? Or are you going to actually take an active role in creating your own future? Now, I don't want to take away from anybody the fact that they've been injured, they feel sorry, they're struggling, their life is more difficult than what it ever has been, but we can't change that now. And this is the open, honest, confronting conversation about let's deal with reality. We can't change the past. I mean, I got shot. I feel like my injuries affect me every day, right? The same thing is going to happen to these people. Their injuries are going to happen every day. But if we get bogged down in going, my injuries are bad, my life is terrible, then it's going to stay terrible. The best way we can move forward is to take an active role in creating the best future we can in the circumstances we have at that time. And victims, no two ways about it. Victim actually happens to people who who have no way of preparing it, but it's whether they stay a victim or they take an, take an active role in the, their future. Yeah, that's that resiliency that we were talking about earlier too. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got another continuum of human durability, as we call it, 
And it starts with being fragile when something hits you and you're brand new and you don't know what to expect. Resilience is in the middle of this continuum. And resilience is the ability to bounce back, the ability to go through a problem-solving process and go, what's going on here? How can I fix this? How can I manage it? And then durability is on the end, and that's about sustaining optimal performance under the circumstances. So if you are a victim, yes, we've got to have a little bit of resilience to be able to bounce back from all those injuries, but then it's about how do we create that durability. With those circumstances, how do I create the best, most sustainable, optimal uh, future for myself, my family, and, and all the rest of it? Can we explain this a little bit more? Because I don't feel like I'm quite clear on it. You have a like a linear, kind of like a timeline that you're talking about of durability, and there's different stages along the way. So yes, it's a continuum. And if you look at it, it starts on the left-hand side, continues across to the right, three phases, and it's an arrow. And at the right-hand side, the arrow starts lifting and pointing upwards to future and more growth. So it starts out with fragile. And this is when we start something brand new. It might be a sport, it might be a business, it might be a relationship, it might be anything. We're new, we're learning, we are making mistakes, and we're looking to experiment. I'm thinking about my first year of parenting, <laughs> how hard it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can go to your first year of college, your first year of school, the first time you picked up a tennis racket. It's all the same. Now, it's one of those things that we go, oh, if I see somebody else who's brand new, like now, if you see another parent who's brand new, you go, oh, that's so understandable. You know, understand what troubles they're going through and where their challenges are. And I am completely on board and I have compassion for them. But we don't show ourselves that same compassion. We judge ourselves. I should be better than this. I'm not allowed to have mistakes. I shouldn't be doing this. The other people that I see aren't making mistakes, so I shouldn't either. So we're really quite harsh on ourselves. And for leaders in business, If you have somebody new coming into your team, you go, oh, no problems. I know that they're going to have challenges. They don't know the system. Somebody's going to have to teach them. All totally understandable. But you as a leader, when you take on a new challenge, when you take on a new computer system, when you take on a contender, somebody running a similar business to you. Competitor. Competitor, that's the word. Thank you. When you've got a competitor who starts up business next to you and you've now got this brand new challenge, We still don't allow ourselves to go, oh, this is something new. I need to work out what I'm doing here. It's no, I expect perfection. I expect myself to be the best possible. I'm not allowed to make mistakes. So we're really hard on ourselves. And for our mental health, and I know I'm sort of going all over the shop here a little bit, but for our mental health, there are two things that I think we need, and that is self-compassion. First and foremost, self-compassion, understanding that we're not perfect. We're just like everybody else in the world, we make mistakes, right? But if we are vulnerable enough to go, yep, I know I'm going to make a mistake, I'll allow myself to make a mistake, but I also know that I'm going to work through that mistake and find the solution, right? Then we're going to go through a lot better and our mindset is going to be so much more relaxed and solutions will come to us a lot easier. The second level of compassion is having compassion for others, other people. Those people that we sometimes go, those idiots how could they do that why did they not think through? have compassion for other people we don't know what they're going through they may have some major issue level of experiences or absolutely absolutely so anyway the continuum starts with this resilience the fragility on the far left hand side where we knew we're learning this is not where we want to stay we want to move very quickly to what i call the middle section which is resilience 
And resilience is being able to go, do you know something? I know I've done wrong here. There's something gone wrong. Let me think this through. Yep, I know what the solution is. Right, let's do this. And that's bouncing back. And that's a very reactive place to be because we're waiting for things to happen. Resilience is brilliant and we're always going to have it, but we don't want to live our life there. I don't think we want to live our life there. Always solving problems. In fact, there was a chemical explosion in the port of Beirut in Lebanon. And this is just over 12 months ago, 3,000 tons of chemicals exploded, destroyed massive parts of the port, knocked over buildings, killed a huge amount of people. Even more were injured, obviously. And the media and the Lebanese government were saying, Lebanese people, they are resilient. We've been through so many wars. We've been invaded. We've had so many challenges, downturn in the economy, all these things. The Lebanese people, they are resilient. They will be able to bounce back from this. And there was a lady interviewed, and she was a member of the public, and her attitude was, I'm tired of being resilient. I just want to be able to enjoy my life. And I think that's where we all want to be, right? And that is what I call durability. And durability is where we are proactive. We're taking responsibility for choices, actions, consequence in the future afterwards before we finally make that choice and start taking the action. We are anticipating what the problems might be. We have an idea of what the indicators tell us. It's going well or it's going badly. And when we see those indicators, we've already got a plan of action to be able to manage it so that it doesn't fall over. And this is where we are 100% reliable. Everything that we do, we know is going to go absolutely right. And if you picture it in your mind, these are the days when you come to work and you go, oh my gosh, this is great. I love this. I want to be there. And you know, let's just take a very small reflection, very quick reflection on when you started podcasting. Your first podcast, how confident were you? Oh man, it took me a while to even get started on it. And I think I recorded, I don't know, a half a dozen, a dozen times before I even released it. I just kept repeating it because it was so awkward and I didn't know what I was doing. So that's the fragile stage, right? This is the, oh my gosh, I'm making so many mistakes, but I want to experiment and you've done well. And then you've got to the part where you go, okay, I'm going to release this. And what happened there? What was happening for you there? For me, I've been through this before. So not with a podcast, but with new things. Because as a kid, I was always afraid of trying new things. And even as a young adult, until I started learning, I had this one experience of when I was learning a language and I made a really big, embarrassing mistake. And in that moment, all of a sudden, this light switch went off when I realized, well, mistakes aren't bad because now I know what not to do. Now I feel more confident in using it. And so I actually have this theory now that whenever I'm trying something new to fail the first time, like get that out of the way, be okay with failing, make it okay. Like I like learning um, scroll saw work. So first time I'm going to make something, it's okay if it looks terrible. I'm totally cool with that because I know that the next one will not even like hold a candle to it. The next one's going to be so much better. So the same thing happened with me for podcasting that my first episode, not so great. My first interview, I was pretty nervous. And now, I mean, I'm like, I'm scheduling interviews every week. We're doing releasing every other week. We are on top of the game and every episode is so much better. And I love it so much more every time. It's so much easier. So yes, I see how that the fragility stage and can grow. I just never, never had a name for it. So this is really helpful because I, I hear you that 
you know, we really do not want to live in that resiliency stage. We want to live our life and be able to be there and to see when those things are happening and not fall apart. Absolutely. So to keep on continuing on the, the model of continuum, what you've nailed is absolutely it. But as I see it, the easiest way to go from fragile to resilient is to get in coaching, guidance, mentoring, and allow yourself to gain experience, which is what you did. You did five or six, which you didn't even release. You've got some experience there. Then you went into releasing them. You're probably still making a few mistakes, but you've learned how to bounce back from those. And now, now when you're doing your podcast, absolutely sensational. The transition from resilient, and tell me if this has worked for you in your podcasts and in your language that you were experimenting with and probably very good at now. The move from resilience to durability is about having confidence, courage, self-belief, and understanding the systems that work for you. Now, this is the obviously the infrastructure that you're working with, but it's your internal systems as well. And it's also the accepting of mistakes, where mistakes don't get you down. You just accept that they're just part of it, that you're going to mess up, and then you just fix it and you move on. You don't wallow in it. You have to just keep going. And I actually see that as still sitting in the resilience part because you're still fixing problems. And I'll refine this a little bit more in a moment. So in that resilient stage, you are still fixing problems. But when you get it to the durable, this is where everything goes perfectly. You don't make mistakes. And you can see the sign that goes, oh, actually, my audio is starting to slip a little bit here. Do I need to adjust that? Yep, back on track. No problems at all. Because you didn't get to the problem at the point where there was a mistake. You caught it before there was a mistake. You had that action in place. You knew exactly what to do, knew what the sign was, and when to take the action. Now, what happens is once we get into this place where we are 100% reliable, we start saying, okay, I'm bored. What can I do now? We do. We do that. Yeah. And so then we take on the next challenge. And for those people listening to the podcast, I'm indicating with my hands that we're stepping up. We're taking on the next level. And when we take on the next level and we step up, we actually slide backwards along that continuum because we go back to resilient now. We've taken on a new challenge. There are new things to learn. There are new systems. There's a new mindset. There might be different finances or relationships or political environment in the office that we have to take on. So there's some new learning. And we need to be vulnerable enough to go, I'm going to take on this new challenge. I know there's going to be some mistakes. And this is where you were saying, I know I'm going to make mistakes because you're taking on that next level of challenge, Mm -hmm. right? And you go, I know there's going to be mistakes with that. And it's about going through the process, same again. If you take on such a big challenge that you're not back to fragile, you just say, okay, I'm actually, and be comfortable, vulnerable enough, have that open, honest, confronting conversation with yourself. I know where I am. I'm fragile. I'm not sure exactly what I'm doing. Who can I talk to? Who can I get advice from? If you're resilient, it's just about, okay, let me work through these problems. I know I can work it out. Excellent. You get your confidence back. You get your courage back. Then you start stepping up and you start going, excellent. Got this. I'm back to it. And you become that durable person again. And once you become that durable person, when we get to that point of durability, it's where we relax. It's our comfort zone. And talking about comfort zone is very, very important. Before we get into that, I'm just curious quickly. I see that a lot of this, this durability coming from maturity, just experience, life experience, personal development, pushing yourself to grow. You just gain this maturity, things that we're not going to really understand when we're 12, when we're 17. But I'm also hearing that there are skills that can be really learned so you can get to that maturity 
faster? Well, I teach these maturity skills, durability skills to 10-year-old kids. Wow. It's taught at their level. So they're not trying to be the CEO of a company. Most 10-year-old kids are not trying to put on a podcast, but they are trying to be better at football, better at basketball, better at netball, better at you know whatever they want to be. They want to be better at maths. And it's about putting it into a context that makes sense for them that they can be better at what they are doing at that time. The system works. And as we get to that point of being durable at what we're doing, we take on the next challenge. And then we get durable at that, and then we take on the next challenge. And that's going to go through until we're 90 and we pass away. Because when we get to our 80s and 90s, sometimes that next challenge is not about getting bigger and better and faster. Sometimes it's about, okay, how do I start minimising things so that I don't have all the stress of looking after this massive house? And how do I downsize? How do I leave a legacy that I can move out of my business and have that contingency plan for whoever's going to take it over. So it's not always about getting bigger and better. It's about what's the outcome you want from the action you're about to take and being able to optimise your performance in that environment. And it really applies across all of life. doesn't matter what age, what background we're from, what industry we're in. Anywhere you can think of resilience, durability is what we actually want. The outcome that we want from the action that we're about to take. Wow. Cool. Well, the question that I ask everybody on the podcast, and it's so fun. We always talk about it all the way through, but just to ask directly, what does it mean to you to have balance and well-being in your leadership? Balance and well-being, I think, comes a lot from self-compassion, understanding that I cannot be perfect at everything. And going back to doing one thing and one thing well, just knowing what I want to do and going about doing that, understanding there's going to be other impacts from everything else in my in my world, knowing that I can't compartmentalize anything, right? So balance really is not about going, I'm in my life now or I'm in my business now because they all impact on each other. Understanding for myself, having compassion for myself that this is all going to impact me, but what's the outcome I want from what I'm about to do now and focusing on right now I'm going to go for a bike ride So preparing dinner will happen when I get home. Uh, Having the discussion about my business growth and travel to America, I'll do that another time. So balance for me is just being good at what you're doing at that time while being aware of those other things around you. Mm, Really focusing and prioritizing where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But also still being aware, but having that compassion that, no, I want to be nice to myself and I'm going to enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah, it's great to have compassion for ourselves. We give it to others so easily. Absolutely. What is it that keeps us from giving it to ourselves as readily as we'll give it to somebody else? Because we look at ourselves and we go, how would somebody else judge me? Okay, I'm going to judge myself that way. Because we don't want to look silly. We don't want to look stupid. We don't want people to laugh at us. We don't want people to think we're useless. So I'm going to judge myself harshly so that my performance is up here so that nobody can have a shot at me. and. In actual fact, if we're compassionate enough to go, as you said before, I'm going to allow myself to make a mistake. I'm going to expect that I'll make a mistake. And when you laugh at that mistake, everybody goes, wow, I respect that. So, you know, having that compassion and that vulnerability, you know, to accept the fact we make mistakes, for me, that's a lot around where balance comes from. And balance is about having that mental space where we can just relax and be who we want to be. Part of that durability, just living our lives. 
Yeah. Well, what about integrity for you? What does integrity mean to you and look like as you're leading, as you're doing workshops, as you're thinking about your past, you're thinking about that experience, that story of when you're laying on the ground, the hard work of being in that program and just being a dad, being a human walking on this earth. You know, there's so many different ways to look at it, but if you had to maybe scrunch it all down, how would you define integrity? I'd probably go back to my open, honest, confronting conversations. That's integrity for me. Saying what you mean to someone else, meaning what you say, and expecting that you will live up to your promises to the best of your ability, right? The intention when I make a statement is that I will live up to that. In fact, I, I'm a single man at the moment, and I've actually just started seeing a new lady, and we were having a discussion around this. And the thing I said to her is, hold me accountable. If I say that I'm going to do something, if I say that I'm going to be a certain way and I'm not, please make me accountable with that. Ask me questions. Don't accuse me and and be aggressive, but just ask me questions because I am very happy that when I say what I mean, I mean what I say and I want to live up to that. And for me, that's that's the integrity. And to give you a, a reflection from my personal life, when I got married, and obviously I'm divorced now, My attitude when I got married was one life, one love, one marriage. And people say to me, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? You know, when they don't know that I've been shot, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to your life? My marriage. My marriage breakdown is a lot more impactful on my life than what the shooting was. Not being able to stay married to the same woman kind of destroyed me. I I went into a, a depressive episode immediately after that. Don't get me wrong. I reflect on it now best decision I ever made. Moving out of that marriage was not good for me. It was not good for her. And we are still good friends now. So, you know, I say this with warmth in my heart for the lady that I was married to, but it destroyed me that I wasn't able to live up to that promise. But self-compassion, I'm vulnerable. I know I make mistakes and I'm very comfortable with it now. And the fact that we were able to stay good friends, that makes it even better. But just saying what you mean, meaning what you say and being accountable for those things that you say. And being accountable to me is about being able to explain the reasons why something has happened, not justifying, but explaining the reasons. And again, this goes back to that open, honest, confronting conversation about reality done with compassion, concern for myself as well as the other person, but just going, actually, yes, I know I meant to do that. I'm really sorry. I dropped the ball there. I meant to pick it back up again. And for me, that's integrity. And if I do make mistakes, throw my hand in the air and go, yep, I stopped up. That's part of your ownership, owning that and moving on, accepting it and repairing those relationships when needed and when you need to and, and taking the responsibility for doing that. Awesome. Well, Derek, before we head out here, is there anything else that you want to make sure you haven't left unsaid? Uh, well, you know, as we spoke about before, I am coming out to America. So if anybody's interested in hearing more about it, please go to my website. I'm sure they're going to be in the show notes. So you'll be able to find those. And uh, yeah, send me a message and I would love to work with anybody who wants to grow or become more accountable or just have a happier life, happier, healthy, more productive. I like working with high performance people and creating high performance mental health. Just love it. Awesome. Well, that was my question for you. You answered it. It was where can we find you and how can we get in touch with you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just to add to that, if somebody wants to have a conversation with me without any commercial benefit to me at all they just want to go i'd love to know more about that send me an email i'll make a phone call if you can i'm happy to discuss this just happy to discuss it well derek 
thank you so much for your vulnerability and your willingness to share your story, to share the experiences that you learned with that, your models of durability, resiliency. This is a really powerful way to look at your life and to take ownership of your decisions, your choices, actions, consequences, and the future thinking. I'm going to get that. Nailed it. Nailed it. Awesome. <laughs> this is a really great way to like go about, and it's going to affect the way I do my business and, and the way I even teach my kids, because I love that you said that about you're teaching 10-year-old kids, because this is something that I can even start teaching my five-year-old. And I teach this in different ways, but it's helpful to have that structure kind of spelled out because it yeah. gives you a a mindset and some more clarity on what you're doing. It's that ownership and that, that clarity of vision. So thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful for your time and honored that you would share it with me. And I can't wait to see you when you're in town. We will catch up and have dinner. I'd love to meet your family. We will catch up. I'll look forward to it. Same here. Same here. Well, thank you so much, Derek. Thank you for joining me on this journey to grow in our leadership. If you enjoyed this episode, you've got to check out the leadership and self-care coaching programs on my website at kylacofer.com. Let's change the world together.